Welcome to the Growth Pioneers Podcast. This is your host, Doug Irwin. On today's episode of the podcast, I bring back Brian McArdle. He's a good friend and my colleague at Edon. He and I get into a couple of really interesting topics, really looking at the sophistication level of the ecosystem in Reno. A lot has happened in even the past six months with COVID, you know, all of the new companies and people moving here, the influx of federal money into the ecosystem, and just the general up-leveling that we've experienced. So we dive into that, go through a lot of different companies, and just have what I hope is a really interesting and engaging conversation about the future of Reno and, of course, the importance of startups and entrepreneurs in remaking that future and, and taking Reno to the best version of itself. So on with the podcast. Welcome back to the Growth Pioneers podcast, Brian. It's great to see you. Thanks. Yeah. Am I the first returning guest? You are the first returning guest. It's an honor. The first guest and the first returning guest. Yes. Full circle. Yes. Well, it's great to have you back. It's good to see you. I, you know, I took a big part of the summer off, so it's good to be back in the saddle and I'm excited to be working to make Reno a greater place with you. Yeah, we all deserved a long break after the last year and a half, so I'm glad you went out and enjoyed yeah. the wildlands. <laughs> I didn't realize I was going to be missing all the smoke, but that's you know that's another thing. So, well, it's good to have you back. Just for those of you that don't know, Brian and I worked together at Edon. He and I've been working to build the entrepreneurial ecosystem here for just under ten years now, which is kind of crazy to think about that. Yeah, so Brian knows everything there is to know about startups. Everything. Everything. No, we're in the process. I think I'm learning more and more every day as much as entrepreneurs in our community are. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a co-creation, right? We're out there adapting to what the conditions on the ground and trying to do the best we can to figure out how to uh, support entrepreneurs at every stage of their journey, which is a daily struggle. Some days worse than others. So, you know, one of the things that I think is really important to talk about right now is thinking about what's going on in the ecosystem. The last time you and I talked, we talked a lot about like where we'd been going and a little bit about where the future is. But I think, you know, now it's good to sort of revisit what's the state of affairs now. And I wanted to really specifically address some misconceptions maybe in the ecosystem. I think, you know, my personal narrative on this is Reno hasn't always been a startup town. And so a lot of people have misconceptions about the value of startups you know, we interchange words like entrepreneur, startup, and small business interchangeably, which makes it confusing. Makes it very confusing. That's one of the things we've learned over time is to support everyone where they're at, you really need, and it's semantics, it's like a Seinfeld conversation, but you really need to dive in and figure out where they're at. And there's nuances between being a small business owner and being a startup founder or a startup co-founder or CEO. And so you kind of have to understand those nuances and then help them in different ways. Yeah, absolutely. And there's no value judgment around entrepreneurial business or startup. It's really, like you said, it's, I mean, they're all part of the fabric of the ecosystem. It's truly about trying to understand the differences so that you can apply the correct support at the correct time. I mean, that's really the issue. I was asked by someone, you know, how do you separate this? And I said, well, everyone's an entrepreneur. Whether you have a new idea, whether you're working in a company and have a new solution for a process or, or something like that, everyone's an entrepreneur. And so we have to, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, we're, we're here for you. We're entrepreneur first. 
once you go down that path, things start to get a little muddy. My quick trick I always tell people is I can understand who they're at, who they are just by the way they introduce themselves. Mm. So if someone says, I'm an owner of this, and I go, okay, got it, owner. I'm a co-founder, got it, and I'm a CEO or VP, got it. And from those things, I can understand if they're a small – most owners will refer to themselves – small businesses will refer to themselves as owners. Yeah. Startup founders will refer to them as founders. You're never going to say, I'm a startup owner. That would sound weird, right? Well, because the startup owns you mostly. But that's <laughs> very yeah. true. And if you know any of the big executive titles go for larger organizations yeah. that are past that sort of startup-y stage. And just by the fact how they introduce themselves, I can usually slot and filter where they're at and where, what they need. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we at Edon really focus our efforts on building the overall ecosystem, but really we have more of an emphasis on supporting startups and what I would say like high growth entrepreneurial endeavors. The small businesses are, like I said, an, a critical fabric to our community, but it, our work doesn't tend to support restaurants and other types of businesses that, you know, would make up beautiful livability of our community. We're really focused on on the primary businesses or the companies that are going to generate more revenue outside the community to kind of bring net revenue back into the community instead of... Yeah, we call those primary companies, which is more than half your revenue comes from outside the area. If not, you you sell locally, you know, you purchase locally, sell locally, that's your local business. But if you're expanding and scaling and, and selling your services through e-commerce or something, most of your revenues are going to come from outside the area. And so we refer to that in economic development as a primary business. You know, and the, the driver really on that is it just has amplified economic activity. I mean, you know, the small businesses are great. They move money between themselves, mm -hmm. which is great. But, you know, when you're trying to grow an economy, you're really trying to figure out ways to bring more new dollars into the community, which is why we focus on on that, which is, again, you know, the Chamber of Commerce is really great at helping support small businesses just to kind of differentiate that for those that you may not know. Well, I, you know, we talked to a lot of early communities that are trying to figure this out. And just like anyone, how do we get to the top of the mountain as fast as possible? How do we get to where you guys are at? And I'm like, well, we're not even at where we want to be. We still, you know, if it's 20 years, we're still halfway through. Or as, you know, Mike Kazmierski will say, you know, you guys are 50% of the way there. Congratulations. Has he given us 50%? I don't think he's given <laughs> us 50%. I 40, think, 30%. You know, it's always a little deflating and then, you know, inspiring at the same time. You know? Yeah, but for communities going down this path, they want to know how they can support high growth startups and all that stuff. And I say, usually the process is you got to start with your small businesses. When someone comes in, typically if you're starting along this path, most of the ideas that come in are going to be local restaurant type stuff. Even when I started as a small business owner, I referred to myself as an entrepreneur. I went to the Small Business Development Center. I had to write a business plan. And, you know, that was the type of businesses they supported. And they were like, you're an entrepreneur, right? And I was just opening up a little corner hospitality type place. If you support those long enough and you create processes and programs, eventually you start seeing bigger opportunities, people thinking bigger. What you really need to do at those early stages is just focus on ideation. Yeah. And how do you come up with great startup ideas? I don't know. It's like, how do you fall in love? It's really, it's really interesting. But, you know, it's almost like improv. I say, if you just let f ideas flow and fluid and just come up with things, you'll land on a, everyone has a million dollar idea in their head. Yeah. You just got to tease it out and, you know, you can gamify it in certain ways, yeah. but they're there. You just got to keep going. 
You run that out long enough and eventually the bigger opportunities will start yeah. popping up. Well, I think that's one of the, you know, one of the long arc, one of the strategic things that we've always talked about is how do we create what I'm going to call like the flywheel effect? Just to put a little bit more clarity on that. I mean, the idea on that is how do you get a company to grow sufficiently where it has a successful exit and it creates a lot of new entrepreneurs and then those entrepreneurs go out and start new companies. And what the data shows is that tends to happen. If you, you know, if you spin out or you have a success, you're going to get a large portion of those people who love being in the community to start new companies in that community. And so you're really seeing that organic growth that comes out of that flywheel effect. And you know, we've been working on this for 10 years, and we're starting to see the flywheel effect, which is pretty amazing. And it doesn't actually come through all of our direct programming but it definitely has come as a result of the growth of Reno. And I think that it's it's important to take a moment and recognize where that flywheel effect is happening. Because I, I think one of the misconceptions people have, again, about you know the whole entrepreneurial system is it's a bunch of small companies that have a lot of needs that really aren't that big of a contributor to the economy. You know, when you compare it to the headlines of these big companies. But I don't think that's entirely true. I mean... You look at, and we're nowhere close to the Bay Area, but if you grew up in Silicon Valley, you have the opposite view. The startups are the economy. Everything that's going on there is economy. Now, you have big five tech and you know all that, but that wasn't always the case. So, I mean, obviously, it's important to have big and small, but startups are the economy over there. And so, I, I guess I keep coming back to this idea that I don't think people in Reno quite recognize or appreciate the value of all that startup activity and what that will ultimately mean for job creation, wealth creation, and, you know, Reno becoming the best version of itself. I've run into that a couple times now. We refer to everything we do as startup creation, entrepreneurial development, and the words they use is technology, sort of company diversification. And we're really talking about the same thing. Some people say all this diversifying, all these tech companies moving in. And we say, yeah, those are startups. They go, oh, I thought you were just working on those little things, couple companies here and there, work tinkering, working on these small things. And hey, maybe one of them will get big, but you know, you guys are just playing in a little sandbox over there. And it's like, no, these the these are tech companies, and every single one has the potential to turn into something huge. Mm-hmm. And in the past couple of years, we've had many become really big companies, employing a lot of people. And they go, oh, I, I refer to them as a tech company, not a startup. And it's semantics again. Yep. We're talking about the same thing. So people are great that we're diversifying our economy into more technology-based, knowledge-based businesses. But they are disassociating that from startups and how you curate startups and how you focus on them in terms of economic development. Yeah, which, I mean, again, you know, if you don't live in the world of economic development and look at all the nuances, I don't blame you for having that view. It's just, I think it's just important for people to realize. I mean, all of the headlines, so a lot of the media around economic development is focused on the companies that are relocated. And that is good and bad, right? There was a lot of political drama associated with, say, Tesla, which, you know, when Tesla came here, you and I would have still considered a a startup, although it was a unique startup, definitely an outlier. But, you know, there was a lot of consternation around incentives and all of those things, and will it actually pay off? But what we're already starting to see is the flywheel effect of Tesla. So just take, you know, the success of Tesla notwithstanding, I know of at least a couple of companies that have spun out of that, entrepreneurs that 
that have come out of that, probably the most successful of which is, it's Redwood Materials? Redwood Materials, yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't they just raise something north of $700 million? Yep, $700 million to recycle lithium batteries. Yeah, so here's an example where a big company comes in the community, they have some success, one of the key people over there decides to leave and start his other company, raises $700 million, making it one of if not the first, one of a very small number of unicorns in northern Nevada. I mean, that is remarkable in, you know, in five years, six years. Just think about all the other things that will come out of Tesla being here as it relates to uh, startups and spinouts. Yeah, you mentioned Tesla being a startup. Somebody asked me that a while ago, is Tesla a startup? And I said, well, or when were they a startup? And I said, well, it could have been 2012 because up until then, they didn't really have their own vehicle. It could have been 2014, 15, I think, when they went public. It could have been 2000, all the way up to about 2017, where even Elon admitted that they were down to like their last bit of cash building the Gigafactory and that they haven't launched the Model 3 yet. And I was like, up until that point, yeah, that's a high risk. Yeah. That's a startup, you know? Now they're a little bit more stable. But at multiple points, you could say, well, they were a startup at this stage, still at this stage, still figuring it out. You know, I wouldn't say they're a startup now, but up until 2017, that's not that long ago. No. And yeah, it's very interesting. And they have brought a lot of talent and they've changed a lot of the narrative. I mean, there was a lot of things going on here, but what I'm most excited about is seeing the things that are coming out of this. I mean, I know we're in, you know, there's a lot of fire going on right now and that's on everybody's mind, but what comes out of a fire, right? Like if you have a pine cone, blows up and sets new seeds and you get new growth. What you're seeing at Tesla and, and other companies, we have a couple other examples, where people leave, create new companies, and that creates a whole new thing. I mean, Redwood Materials is in Carson. I'm pretty sure they're going to be moving to Reno. And that's just going to bring more great jobs and great opportunities for Nevadans. And it's what you and I want to see. I mean, I would love to see one of our startups that started with two people go through all the way through the process and go public. We got a bunch of dogs in that race right now, but uh... and we have seen some companies do that. I mean, we're talking about Trainer Road, started with two former IGT employees. Yeah. They're now up to I would guess 70 employees, have their own offices, have employees all over the world. I still think most of their customers are from outside the United States. So they're an international company. Yeah. And it started with two guys working at a Starbucks and, you know, they're at the Reno Collective on Arlington and they were just there. It's yeah. like, good for you guys. How can we help you? Love that. I mean, and you know, there's a lot of, well, I definitely want to talk about a lot of the different companies that are, that are going on here. Just while we're talking about spin outs and just the value of the role of some of these big companies, I guess I'll go back to first principles. My core belief is that entrepreneurs are the drivers of innovation. You know, there's... Again, the big companies get the headlines. There's a lot of money to be made there. But for me, the thing that really drives our country forward are the entrepreneurs. And so I just love seeing these things come out. So, you know, our good friend and former board member, Adam Kramer, spun out of Switch. Well, I guess he didn't spin out of Switch. He left Switch to run uh, Ledger 8760, which you may be more familiar with what they no, do. It's the number of hours in a year. Oh, good. And they're involved in clean tech. Yes. I believe they allow municipalities to track carbon emissions. Got it. Just so that they can benchmark and hit the goals and track the, you know, if you don't measure it, you can't manage it. So I think it's, they go in and 
tell you how you are and if you're hitting those goals or not. And I think they have a couple contracts with the city of Reno, maybe Washoe County. That's great. And, you know, one of the things I love about Adam, Adam is kind of one of us. He started doing ecosystem work in Vegas. I mean, early during the downtown project and all all of that. Yeah, he hosted the downtown podcast in Tony Shea's condo in the Ogden down uh, in downtown Las Vegas for many years. Did some work with Startup Weekend when we were organizing Startup Weekends up here. He was organizing Startup Weekends down there. And so it was great. He was sort of an ally for us. And I believe he was at the chamber as well at that time. And then he left the, the chamber and went over to Switch and had a great career at Switch. And now he's back putting on his entrepreneurial shoes again. And what I love about that, though, is his roots are these entrepreneurial roots. And so, you know, when he we spoke recently, he's like, how can I help people better understand the importance of entrepreneurship because I, I see it, you know, and I've been, you know, he's been on our board, he's worked in government affairs, he's worked in big companies and small companies, and now he's out, you know, doing that. And, you know, of course, my first response to him is make a successful company. That's always helpful. But just having somebody that starts a company that really understands the importance broadly for the ecosystem is great. And, you know, he will undoubtedly help support us in that regard. But I guess my point is he's a big champion for entrepreneurship and being local. Like he believes in supporting locals. And so when you have these companies, despite how you feel about companies coming in from outside the area, ultimately they become part of our community and people become part of our community. And then they grow and they help support locals and it rises the whole tide. So it's exciting to see that. I mean, I think there's a couple other companies. I mean, Ridgeline is another example that's just, again, Amazing. When we first started this, if you and I would have thought we could go down and list the number of companies that we have today, we would be shocked with at the different sectors, at the different level of technology. I mean, you know, Ridgeline, for those that may not be familiar, is David Dutfield, who is the founder of PeopleSoft and then Workday. It's one of his new endeavors. It started in Incline. They're growing and hiring rapidly. It's an enterprise software. And, you know, there's a, another company related to that, Alchemy. All of those are homegrown, started in Nevada or northern Nevada, and are growing and hiring people like mad. And I'm sure that those all have real significant valuations and have real potential to create wealth in the community. Yeah, and they, the type of jobs that they are hiring will change our economy in different ways. I think now it's a talent game. Talent is the currency across America right now. Is Who are the best and brightest and where are they? And we have a great community where we have active dialogue with our university and our school system where if they say we need data scientists or we need robotics engineers, we adapt and we supply those. Once they have those skills, other companies can be attracted here for those who are looking for those types of skills and it's part of that flywheel you talked about. Yeah. And I mean, I completely agree with you. I mean, COVID totally changed the equation, right? Now, people can work pretty much anywhere. I mean, not universally, but people are able to work more. So what drives that mobility of talent? I mean, in the Bay Area, it was it has always been around opportunity, right? People go live in the Bay Area because it's an opportunity for them to work on amazing projects. And there's a real likelihood of wealth creation for them. You know, that's what my first experience in a startup was all about. We went public, got a little money, changed the trajectory of my life. It was great. So having those opportunities in Reno allows us to keep the best talent coming out of UNR and attract some of the most sought after talent in the world to build great companies. I mean, you've got 
David Dutfield, he's like got the Midas touch. I think anybody would want to go work for one of his companies. You've got Figure, which is the former founder of SoFi, which is a multi-billion dollar company. You've got now former Tesla people. I mean, so there's there are really amazing opportunities for people, you know, that want to go try and make it big in Reno, which is super exciting because I think that was always my big concern was there just weren't that many wealth creating opportunities in Reno. We definitely focused on it, had to do all the grunt work to get it done. But now we're here and it feels a little bit more natural and organic and that there's things are happening a little bit more naturally now. We're not in there pulling all the levers trying to get people to do these things. Now, the fact that we have these companies, the fact that the second generation employees and and those things are now starting to yield new opportunities and we're not as directly involved as we used to be, which changes our role in different ways. But yeah, you have a company like Dragonfly Energy who came out of the university with a lithium battery type technology, found a very niche market in RVs, boats, what would be the other one? Maybe golf carts and things like that. Really hit it big and they're they're gonna be the next unicorn if they're not a unicorn already. Oh yeah, I mean, right out of the university, local growth, didn't take very much money. And they're killing it. And anybody that is a, an RV owner knows how frustrating batteries can be. So we'll get a plug for the Battleborn battery was a really disruptive idea, right? To put you know, a current battery, a lead acid's like $100 and maybe an AGM's like $300 and a lithium's like 1000 But it lasts 10 times longer. The performance is so much better. And at the time, it was a pretty radical idea. And good for them. I mean, they have done a remarkable job. And now they're giving back. They're involved in the community. Yeah, very involved with the business school and the Sontag competition up there. They were they were involved with Sontag business competition. When they're up on campus, they're both MBA students from the University of Nevada. And it's fascinating to see where they're at now. Yeah. I love the local entrepreneurial stories too. I, on the last podcast, we had Clint Vernon from Message Desk. And he, you know, I want to quote this line. He's like, every line of code was written in Reno. I think we need to have like a hashtag written in Reno (laughs) for our tech community. But, you know, for me, and I'm sure you feel, you know, very similar to this. It's like each one of these companies is sort of like one of our babies. Like I really look at what they're doing as just this amazing journey and and helping the community. I don't, I I just, I don't know. I'm getting a little verklempt about it. No, the, the two I always refer to are Wes King at Tahoe Trail Bar, who was at a coffee shop making these bars in the back, purchased, I think, the recipe from the owner, decided to start packaging himself, and now is in every Rayleigh's and Whole Foods and Costco now in Nevada, Northern California. He's just doing amazing, but I just remember every from day one when we met him, all the steps that he's had to go to to get where he's at now, as well as Lauren Stoll from American Duchess. Yeah. I always say, if you can turn historical shoes into a high-growth e-commerce type company that has international customers, yep. congrats. But I've watched that one from day one all the way through all the processes of her. Now I think she's manufacturing in three countries. She has her own warehouse where she ships all of her products out of. She's designing new lines of shoes every day. And it's really, it's exciting to see. Yeah. But I always go back to, you know, that's the one I point to to say, I remember when we, you know, talk to her day one and, and to look at where she's at now is yeah. huge success. Or we can't forget Laura Zander. I mean, she's going to yarn bomb the mm. entire world. I mean, she's dominating the world of a uh, yarn world 
I mean, it's unbelievable. Like, who would have thought that you know, getting a couple people together for some yarn and coffee and trucky would turn into the enterprise that she's built? It is. Sometimes people say, "Well, that's just yarn. How big of a business can you actually build?" Or it's just historical shoes. How, you know, how big can that possibly be? And if you spin it the right way and you approach it the right way, and I mentioned primary companies, you can open up a local yarn store. Or you can try to do something much larger in scale. And if you decide to go that route, you start to pick up more. And then eventually, yeah, you're trying to keep up with the growth you have. And it creates different challenges and opportunities as you go through that process. Yeah. Which, you know, I kind of want to come back to this thing about how our role is changing. When we first started this, obviously, we were the people in the trenches running the startup weekends and one million cups. And our, and our world has changed. We're just coming, you know, I, I don't want to jinx it. It feels like we're coming out of COVID, although, you know, there's obviously a resurgence of that. But as we're thinking about what does the new landscape look like, when we survey what's happened over the 18, last 18 months, a lot has changed in Reno. And I'd say that we are, you know, we're trying to develop new strategy around this. So kind of what are some of your thoughts about what's come as a result of COVID and where does that put Reno? Well, we started with simple things like business model canvases, you know, and now we're helping entrepreneurs with very sophisticated funding rounds, walking them through that process. So it, it definitely has changed our role in all of this. I think going forward, we have, you know, we can start looking at, I hate to say clusters as sort of like a typical economic development term, but, you know, we have pockets of talent in industries where we can sort of leverage and throw a spotlight on to see how we can grow that. There's a lot of like biotech businesses they're looking at the area. We have a couple companies here that have capabilities. Charles Rover Labs. We have a, a lot of food manufacturers that gives us a lot of biochemists and bioprocessing engineers. And the biotech and health tech space is, is huge right now. Even through the Reno Seed Fund, you're not seeing as many. The mom economy, as people called it, where everything that your mom used to do for you, doing your laundry, getting food delivered, things like that, or social media companies. Now we're starting to see a lot more health tech, biotech solutions, deep tech, things like that. Those are harder, harder problems. They take a lot more money and knowledge. And what's great about our local economy is that, yes, housing is expensive, as it is almost every city on the West Coast, maybe in all of the nation. But hardware is hard, as we said before, and your runway can be extended. You have clarity here and having a supportive community with the talent that you need is actually a good recipe for success. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's allowed that to emerge is COVID really changed the script on how people want to live. And I think we see this. There's not a day that goes by that we don't get some communication from someone wanting to leave California or already here as a result of leaving California. And so one of the things that I'm that I've noticed over the past, you know, even six months are the people that have just showed up in Reno. And, you know, some of the people that have showed up are heads of major venture funds, serial entrepreneurs, former executives of Fortune 100 companies that are now launching new companies. I remember, you know, 10 years ago, we would have like latched onto that one person like white on rice and like, and they now it's like, they okay. They would have taking our calls. Yeah. Now it's like, who do we call? We got a whole list of people like that. And what's cool about that is, you know, the vast majority of them are like, okay, cool. I can see the potential in Reno. And I'm now I've made a choice to make it my home. So how can I, you know, roll up my sleeves and make it better? So I think one of our challenges is how do we 
identify these people that are entrepreneurial supporters kind of at the genetic level, like they grew up in the in that world. It's, it's, it, they don't have to be convinced that it's important. How do we bring those people into the fold and help turn them into ambassadors for entrepreneurial development? Yeah, I feel like we're more community connectors now than we were before. There's all these people, and now we sort of have to be the host. Yeah. So we're doing a lot more events and introductions of all these people who, you know, we used to do a lot of education, a lot of connecting people, mentorship, advisor, things like that to get people to help them learn through osmosis by being around other people. But now we have this new crop of people who I'll call them residents, community members, because they really are part of the community now, who they say, yeah, I see what's going on here. You guys are on the right track. This is, I find it exciting. I'm glad I moved here. You know, put me where you need me sort of thing. And now our job has really felt like we are just make putting all the pieces together. It's a huge puzzle and we have opportunity and how do we put it all together? So we're doing a lot more just little things, collisions as they used to call them, you know, and from the collisions, magic starts happening. Well, I mean, you know, one example obviously is we'd run a founder dinner series. It's a, you know, highly curated invite only dinner for these founders to get to know each other. Because I think there's a lot of people that showed up here, have remote work or have their primary focus of work being somewhere else, but then they want to be plugged in. And, you know, that has the serendipitous connections that have come out of that. Serendipitous collisions. Yeah, serendipitous collisions, exactly. And when we were talking about the Venture Conference 2.0, yet to be, maybe there's a code name, a secret name, whatever, we'll call it that. You know, just the thinking about how that's different. I mean, COVID obviously affected how people want to mingle or connect in large groups, but also a reflection of the increased sophistication. You know, it was very clear when we did Reno Venture Conference 1.0, which was like, what, two years ago? Oh, geez. Two Two and a half years ago, because we canceled the last two. Yeah. But back then, it was like, okay, we have to do angel education. Angel 101. Teach people how to be angel investors. And, you know, that doesn't seem like that's going to be an important thing to do in Venture Conference 2.0. I have a fear that if the group we have now came to that, they would be a little bit bored by Angel Investing 101. It's sort of, what does angel investing look like in a community like this is more of the conversation now. Yeah, which is, again, you know, the going back to the evolution of the environment, it was very obvious that we had a lot of, you know, we had a lot of people that had capacity to be angel investors, didn't understand the value, didn't understand how to do it. And, you know, we went through a process of that. Now the conversation has shifted. It's like, okay, now that we have, we have some experience in that world, we can always use more, you know, what are the bigger challenges? And I think you and I would probably agree that we need diversification of capital. It's great that we have the funds that we have, but more different is always better. We have a different population. We need to support people at different stages all of those things. So now we can look at it as, okay, we just don't need a a beachhead. Now we need more of an ecosystem of capital, which is a a more advanced problem than where we started. Mm -hmm. And Angel Education 101 is always good, but it's like, we don't have to, we've moved from that stage, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And even there's online opportunities through AngelList and other syndicates, online syndicates now to invest. And so it's not just you need to join a angel group in order to be angel, you know, an angel investor. You mentioned there just weren't a lot of opportunities to make investments, you know, even more than five years ago. 
it would be someone's like, oh, I, I gave my nephew some money. And in their mind, it's like a loan, right? Yeah. To start some crazy thing. I don't even know what they're working on. And that was the situation. Now we have a consistent deal flow of companies in different industries. We have a captive audience who's looking to place investments. Some people say that our Reno is is a risk-taking community, and so it's always going to be a little bit entrepreneurial, but that's a, a leap to make those two connections. I know we're risk-taking in the fact that all the vices, but those things have turned our economy into one of like hospitality and gaming, but not really of opportunity growth. Yeah, and I think that you, know, you see that we were just ranked like eighth best city to start a business, but that's again, you know, across the board. And I think when you're talking about high growth, high technology companies, it's a very different equation. You need different ingredients, right? Capital is important, sophisticated service providers. I mean, that's the thing that'll be interesting. In the Bay, you get some of the, I'm sure there's good lawyers everywhere, maybe. Sorry, lawyers. But they're very sophisticated. You have accountants that are very sophisticated. You have service providers and clients that are very sophisticated. So I think we're seeing the sophistication level increasing across the board. Our our angel investors are getting wiser. Our fund managers are getting wiser. That's bringing up our entrepreneurs. The, hopefully that's bringing up the service providers. It's having to bring up our level of support. All of those things are a natural evolution of the sophistication of the community, which is, I mean, it doesn't have to go that way, but it does seem like it is moving that way. It definitely is moving that way. We don't see it because it's day-to-day inch by inch, but it is definitely, if you took a step back, it's come a long, long way. Yeah. Our founders, we're, you know, we'll have some growing pains as well. I think, you know, when founders raise capital, they think it's going to happen immediately. And typically it takes six to seven months. Some data shows that from the first time you meet an investor to the time you get your check can be a year or longer. And so that means you have to start creating relationships with those people earlier. And that's part of what we're trying to do is make those connections now. Uh, through a founder dinner or something, and it's just a, hi, I'm so-and-so. And a year and a half later, you may be getting a check from that person. But people think it just happens fast and that there's just money raining from the sky. And that's not the case sometimes. And there's Usually. nuance and detail. Yeah, right. Why can't I just go get coffee with someone and they'll just write me a check? That happens, right? <laughs> yeah, that happens when you have been a serial entrepreneur and you know the investors, you made them money, and you go back for round two. And then they're like, all right, I'm betting on you. Or, you know, we saw this in one of our deals where, you know, the founder was like, yeah, I got a new idea in this area. He did really well in the last one. And a bunch of people funded him, didn't even know what they were doing. You know, that just happens. But that's not the norm. And, you know, you have to meet people at every stage where they're at. Somebody mentioned it's like Hollywood. If Steven Spielberg goes out to do his next movie, do you think it's hard for him to go out and raise the funding to start the movie or to get the best actors? No, they're probably asking, like, please take my money over this person's money. Can I be first in line to give you my money? And so, yeah, there's a little bit of a glamour for people who have done it before, who have experience. Totally. That's just the nature of it. And so, you know, I think, like, level-setting expectations with entrepreneurs is always challenging, right? Nobody's, no entrepreneur thinks their baby is ugly. And yet, sometimes you have to point out that there's a few things, there's a little hair on the deal or whatever. You know, one of the things, it was funny, we were talking with a venture fund outside the community that's interested in, you know, making some investments here. And so we were curating a list of who they might talk to. And I just went through our list. And and at the end of the call, the guy was like, if I could get a meeting with all of those people, that would be amazing. I'll come for an extra day. And it kind of dawned on me like, oh, wow, there's a lot of deals and a lot of deals at that stage. Now, it's not a lot of deals relative to probably two blocks in San Francisco, 
that said, it was a real testament to our local entrepreneurs, what they're doing, that we're attracting that type of outside capital. That should be another hashtag, stay an extra day. Stay an extra day. <laughs> you know, we sort startups between sort of like higher growth success, ones who have achieved a level of success, ones that are still in sort of that growth phase, and then ones that have just launched. They have a website, but they don't really have much revenue now. And there's probably like 15 companies that fit in each one of those categories. It's sort of like success at the top, growth, launch, and then some people who are at the idea stage that are just still trying to formalize what they're working on. And we have a ton in each stage right now. But many, many years ago, it was a ton in the ideation stage, few that have launched. You know, when we were doing Startup Weekend, we used to count every Startup Weekend graduate as a new startup company in the area. Now, I, I don't think we would just because it's like, well, you, you have a lot to go and you started this idea 72 hours ago. Now we're at, you know, it's different. We're dealing with real companies that are growing with real startup situations. Oh, yeah. And on the, we do attract actively startups from outside the region. It's harder work, but what I've noticed, and initially I was sort of resistant to it until I realized like you could thin the herd of startups in the Bay Area and it would never, it would never notice and probably doing them a good job. The response to our inquiries has never been as positive, I think, which has been surprising. And, you know, again, you know, you're not talking about moving 500, 600 people. You're talking about moving like five, mm -hmm. maybe 10 people or any more. What these companies look like are a couple of key people and their teams are distributed, which is, you know, again, they're bringing skills. They want to grow, but they're entrepreneurs. They can't be idealistic. They have to adapt to the conditions of the world. I mean, any more. It's funny, for a long time, people are like, where's all your tech talent? Where's all your tech talent? And so that was difficult. And now people are like, well, we just have an outsourced team for tech. Where's all your salespeople? <laughs> <laughs> so it's just interesting how it's adapted. I always ask, how are we going to find the talent we need? And I'm like, how do you find the talent now in the Bay Area? Oh, we have to recruit them. We have to steal them from other companies. Some, some of them are remote, you know, and we haven't even met them yet, but they work in Kansas or they work in New Zealand. And you're like, okay, well, you know, it might be just the same when you come to our community. Yeah. You might have to get them from another company. You might have to hire, outsource them or have them work virtually anywhere in the world. But that's how businesses are done now. Yeah. Although, you know, there Teams is are built. totally, there's just some advantage, you know, the, it's difficult for a, a startup to compete with Apple and Google and Facebook. I mean, those are always challenging companies because they could just have deep pockets and, you know, cachet and stuff. So I think, you know, there are some inherent advantages for companies in these smaller markets when they're trying to find good talent that, that have family here or really like the lifestyle here. I say there's loyalty and longevity from your team when you move to an area like this. And I think in the Bay Area, maybe turnover time is nine to 11 months for an average em employee before they go and they move across the street for free dry cleaning and maybe lunch in the you know big company cafeteria. But when they move here, they can go mountain biking in the afternoons. Daycare is very easy for them, no commute. And it's like, wow this feels great. I'm going to stick with this company a lot. Why would I go anywhere else? And even the founders say, we feel that as a team. We're all happy to be here. We're very cohesive. We do team activities. And I read an article that said, for the cost to fly our executive team out for an offsite, we had the entire company of like 180 people do a three-day weekend in like Tahoe. Yeah. And it was the same cost. And so now versus doing a very expensive offsite for the small executive team, 
our whole entire company has now this huge cultural event and we'll do it every year. And now they feel like they're part of a family and those employees stay long-term because now you have a family that feels like a team. And that's some of the benefits of a community like this. Yeah, I completely agree with everything you said. What are you most excited about for the next couple of years? I mean, there's a lot of opportunity on the rise to make positive impacts, but what are some of the things that are kind of most exciting for you? Where do you, where do you see the biggest opportunities and maybe some of the biggest challenges? I think when you start seeing wealth creation would be the word, but when you start to see people achieve success and reap the benefits of that success and then sort of share that success after the fact, I'm really excited to see that. We built a culture like that where when you have that success, you're not just going to go run off somewhere else and spread those seeds around. You're going to stay here and you're going to re-engage and double down and build something new. I'm really excited to see that. I'm excited we have capacity now. I think we can do like a startup week. You look at a lot of these communities in like Calgary where they have these huge, they call them like week-long launch parties where they just celebrate startups for an entire week. And I think that's different because if we would have done that, something like that, a couple of years ago, it would be education focused. Like how do we create speakers and panels for our entrepreneurs in the community to learn something because we're trying to, you know, bring everyone up. Now it's less education. It's just more celebration. I think we have so much going on now that we can just fill a whole week just celebrating startups. And that's the connection and community piece. Yeah. And hopefully through that celebration, people from around the community will start to recognize, you know, coming back to our original point of the role these companies play. These companies, in a lot of cases, are bringing in the jobs of the future. And, you know, I have two boys. They were going to go where they're going to go in the world. But I'd much rather them have the opportunity to pursue their dreams in this community if that's where they want to go. And these companies are providing that. I mean, this is how we're retaining 87%. I don't know if that's an exact number, but of the graduates out of UNR, you know, this is young people are going to want to be involved in really interesting things. So these companies are making that possible. And again, nothing wrong with the large companies. And there's a really interesting connection. I just, coming back to my core belief, it's sort of like David and Goliath. Like, I'm a big fan of David. I, I just think that that's a driver. And again, it all makes a beautiful fabric of an economy. It's just exciting to see that there's new opportunities so that your kids and my kids, should they want to stay, will have... I mean, your kids are already doing robotics, right? Like, they're, Yeah, they're part of the first Lego League robotics, yeah. I think you go back to why are startups so important, and there's a ton of data that says that startups are net new job creators. And when we say net new, that means that they're creating jobs that didn't exist before. And so if you have another manufacturer come into an area they're going to take employees and a manufacturer employee goes to another manufacturer. You know, that's zero sum, I guess you could say. Where when a company like Iris Automation or autonomous vehicles or robotics, these are jobs that didn't exist before. Data scientists, machine learning experts. These are jobs that, that didn't physically exist anymore. And so those jobs are new. So that when we say net new jobs, it means it's creating jobs that didn't exist. And so there's a lot of data that says that the jobs of tomorrow, there's going to be so much job loss due to automation, but there's going to be like 90 million jobs that we don't even know what they are yet. Yeah. And it's probably going to be around robotics and automation and things like that. And so it's really important to have our kids focusing on stuff like that. But long term, we need to get our kids in the education system learning those skills now. You know, it's paying, putting down the down payment now so that we'll have a great community 20, 30 years from now. Yeah, absolutely. And this is one of those things I don't think people necessarily connect with economic development. I mean, we're probably, I mean, I don't 
I don't know this for sure. So, but I got to imagine we're one of very few economic development agencies that has a robotics coordinator on staff. We believe so much in the importance of robotics, software development technology for our kids that we support this type of program at the level, at the staff level, because it needed to happen. And again, you know, from an evolution of the community, we had to show what's possible. I think this was always, you know, this is another example of this is the seed fund, right? We had angel investors and they, they made some investments, but until you put a stake in the ground and said, look, you got to do it a different way. Here's the way we're going. Did we really gain momentum? So I you know, I think this big kudos to Mike for seeing where this was going and putting, you know, our money where where our vision was. And, you know, again, your kids are a direct beneficiary of that. Absolutely. Leadership and strate- strategic planning. It's really important at the end of the day. Yeah. You know, I was so excited the other day, my son came home and, you know, for years, I'm a you know, recovering software developer. And so he came home and he's like, let me show you my scratch mm-hmm. program. I mean, it took me only like four years of pounding scratch into him and finally in sixth grade he gets to do scratch development but i'm just excited to see that the the community has started to embrace this and i guess this is i don't want to sound like a broken record here but i'm hoping that communities our community can really embrace the startups and really understand their value beyond what maybe they think of as a small business because just like we're embracing you know, robotics and technology for the benefit of our kids, so shoot too, should we embrace startups. I mean, they are going to be the foundation, the future of our community. And so that's my hope. Yeah. My childhood good friend, her little brother is now working at Bombora. And it's fascinating to think that I saw him grow up and graduate from the university. Now he's working at one of our startup companies. And as you just said, it, it really comes full circle where you're like, okay, yeah. now my kids will probably be working at one of these companies someday. One thing about that is you saw like Tesla or Tulsa, Oklahoma did that remote work program where they're paying people like $10,000 to come to Tulsa. Yeah. And there was a lot of conversation around, should we be doing something like that? Should we be incentivizing, you know, remote workers to come here? And we do, when you dug into the data, the reason they were doing that is because there was a brain drain in Tulsa. Yeah. And they said, if we don't do something, we're losing people. And they had already lost a ton of people. And so how do we get people back? And so they had to incentivize people to come back. Yeah. I didn't realize that. Face value, you think in Tesla or Tulsa, Tulsa. Tulsa's just, you know, has a great program to bring knowledge workers in. But at the end of the day, it was a response to a problem they were seeing. Yeah, which is, you know, it's always interesting. You see these strategies and we, you know, we're always looking at our contemporaries and, you know, our other cities to see what we can learn. But you really have to, like you said, go to that one level down. I, I still never forget talking to one of the, one of our, colleagues in Austin. I'm like, how do you get all these people to come to Austin? He's like, make sure Austin's cool. <laughs> and so then you don't have to do anything. You know, you don't have to, you know, you can buy a lot of barbecue for $10,000 in, te- in Tulsa. Now you got me saying <laughs> Tesla, not Tulsa, but <laughs> yeah, I think this is the, the second and third order implications of economic development. I care deeply about the arts personally, but one of the reasons why we have such a commitment to the arts is that it makes us a better community. It makes it a great place. And that draws great people. So I think artists and entrepreneurs are cut from the same cloth. And that's so I have a lot of resonance with them. But from a community perspective, having great artists and great opportunities for music and art makes us a more livable place. And so it's totally an economic development issue because we need to keep good people coming. It's better. I'd rather 
put a lot more money into the arch than pay $10,000 a person for a remote worker. So if you can get on the front end of it, if we had to spend $10,000 a person, if that's what it came down to, maybe that's a good strategy. But I'd like an ounce of prevention is better than a pound of, what am I trying to say? <laughs> I don't even know what the analogy is with that anecdote. Yeah, it's graduates don't want to leave here and now they have opportunities to stay here. And not because it's just there's opportunities, but because they love living here. There was an Austin Reddit page, and one of our local entrepreneurs started commenting on it, where it's like, hey, for anyone who's lived in Austin for more than 20 years, you know what Austin was like back then. And let me give you an open invitation to come up to Reno, because Reno feels a lot like Austin 20 years ago, where... If you want arts, it's here. If you want music, it's amazing. If you're from the Bay Area, we have a bakery that rivals like Tartine called yeah. Perrin Bakery. Oh, Perrin Bakery is amazing. The coffee's good. The beer's good. The weather's great. It's e outdoors are more accessible. And so, you know, it's like, hey, if if you've outgrown Austin or Austin has outgrown you, maybe you want to come up to Reno. If you want to stay in that same size city, same feel and culture, it's at Reno right now. And I'm not saying we're trying to attract people from Austin to Reno, but when you look at where Austin was and where's Austin now, you can, and then you're sort of relating to where Reno is now to where Austin was back then, maybe we're on the same trajectory. Yeah. And I think one of the important things is let's not lose that arts and culture and experience piece. Yeah. So I think Austin's at risk of losing that, losing its soul a bit. And that used to be South by Southwest and Austin city limits and, and all those yeah. things. And now it's it's different. And, and Austin's amazing. I love going down there. But it's different than it was sure. before. Sure. And, you know, and that's always challenging, right? Because you have, I think we develop our sense of what a character of a place is in a couple moments in time. And there there's always this nostalgia. But I don't want to get too philosophical, but everything's impermanent and everything is changing. So, I, you know, we have to also adapt to the change in reality. And I think that's really what, from my perspective, a lot of economic development is about is like, how do we best prepare ourselves for what we know is going to be true, which is change and evolution. And, you know, the world is getting more interconnected. There are obviously, they're getting to be more of us. Technology is accelerated at a, at a rate that we've never seen before. And that's going to cause disruptions in, you know, lots of markets. So how do we best prepare ourselves? And I think the work over the last 10 years has really diversified, and we've seen that relative to our, our friends down in Las Vegas, which, by the way, I'm really excited to see that there's a real groundswell for a startup ecosystem and a growing tech economy down there. So I'm really happy to see that they're making headway. But, you know, it's pretty clear that they didn't focus on diversification over the last 10 years, and th the data doesn't lie. We've fared the COVID pandemic much better economically than they have. I think we got our startup community out of the Great Recession, and I think they're going to get theirs out of the pandemic. Yeah, oh, that's good, good, good perspective. And I am watching. It's great to see what's going on in Las Vegas. People are starting to get connected. There's a couple groups that are really starting to gather people. Yeah. I'm going to go down there at a certain point and, and attend some of these things. So it's really exciting to see. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that you need a wake-up call, right? I think for us, the Great Recession put the final nail in the coffin of gaming as a primary driver of our economy, right? I mean, there's still gaming here, but it's a relatively small percentage. And then you, you know, you see something like a global pandemic and it shuts down tourism and gaming and you realize, wait a second, maybe we shouldn't put all our eggs in one basket, even though, you know, you're the best at the world at that. 
it does make you susceptible to uh, boom and bust. So again, a good crisis is a horrible thing to waste. Hopefully, this is the thing that propels Vegas because I think although we're very different ecosystems and you know we were eight hours apart, everybody, I love that people think that we're really close to each other, but it will be really important for the state to have a unified or at least some common beliefs around entrepreneurship because there is definitely some work to be done at the legislative level and you know just by the sheer population size vegas has way more influence so i'm really hopeful that our friends down in vegas are successful at making the case for why entrepreneurship is important and hopefully together we can build some quality legislation to help support entrepreneurs. I mean, this year, actually, since our last podcast, we got a, a little legislation through. I mean, we, I really mean Startup Envy and the Lieutenant Governor's Office to clarify blue sky laws. Very technical, but still critical. Step in the right direction. Step in the right direction. We need to see more of that. You know, I'm also happy to see at the state level with GoEd really starting to embrace, not that they haven't before, but really starting to embrace the importance of entrepreneurship. And this is in the backdrop of what is likely to be, definitely in our lifetime, the largest transfer of funds from the federal level into the state and city level. And, you know, a lot of it is targeted at micro-businesses, underrepresented groups, and a lot of the different areas that will affect entrepreneurship. So it, it really represents a once-in-a-generation opportunity to tackle some problems that we haven't tackled and give us some powder to, to try and solve some things that we've never been able to do. I mean, I don't want to get into too much, but there's a couple of programs that we've always wanted to bring to the community that if not for money, we would have had. And now it looks like we have some capital to pull those things off. And it's a pretty remarkable time. It's amazing how much things have shifted even in the last you know six months since we had our last conversation. And as I mentioned, it, it starts with the small business ideation, small business stage, and then you run that out long enough and it starts to yield to other, other, other opportunities. So I do think that a lot of those federal funds, especially in small business lending, they are focused on a national level now. They are focused on technology, entrepreneurship, just because the data says that entrepreneurship is decreasing. New business starts are decreasing, even though they say startup activity is rising. Traditional entrepreneurship is maybe decreasing. But the net new job creators, we have to support them. So it's an incredible opportunity. And there are a lot of challenges out there. So opportunities and challenges are a great combination to find some magical things. Well, it never makes it boring. That's for sure. Well, we'll land this plane. But Brian, you know, just a, a pleasure to work with you, to be friends with you and just go through this journey. It's just always a pleasure, man. I always enjoy looking at your smiling face and, and <laughs> tackling the community's problems with you. Well, it's it's going to be fun to do another 10 years. Things are different now than they were before. And it's going to be a, a just second chapter. I don't even know what chapter we're in. The future is bright and it's going to be fun. Yeah. So I'm not stopping. I don't think you are either. My only ask for the community, if you're listening, is help an entrepreneur, connect us to any entrepreneurs that want support, or if you want to get involved, check us out at edon.org, and uh, yeah, get involved. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. <laughs>